Once again, the liberals are at it on Twitter. They're going back and forth about school choice. And we're going to talk a little bit about that on today's Citizen Stewart show. And we're also going to give you something to think about, something that will help us get out of the political polarization. Stay tuned. It's going to be a great show. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and stories that aren't being covered, looking to shed some light on the dark forces affecting our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart. I'm also the CEO of Brightbeam, a nonprofit network of activists fighting for educational opportunity and justice for every child. As is always the case, my co-host this week is Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South, which means he knows what he's talking about. I think we both do. Let's jump right in. Christopher Tackett on Twitter said there are four types pushing school choice, and I think he means four types of people pushing school choice. Number one, for the Catholic Church and billionaire evangelical Christians like Betsy DeVos, publicly funded vouchers for private religious schools opens a path to taxpayer support for the religious orgs. Number two, the billionaires. Of course, it's always the billionaires. The billionaires, the Walton family, John Arnold, Charles Koch, school choice grants a path uh, to undermining the public education and lowering their taxes. Keep tax money, make more money, indoctrination. It helps them out. Uh, Number three, For billionaires like Bill Gates, Reed Hastings, and Michael Dell, School Choice prepares a path for creating an education technology industry that has the promise of huge profits. If you wanted to make money, School Choice is like literally the worst way. It's very ridiculous. His fourth category is for the white supremacist, School Choice presents a path for not having their children attend school with those people. The Venn diagrams of one, two, and three have some overlaps with four. So those are the four kinds of people pushing school choice. And this is such a white progressive, I went to good schools, I'm okay, I don't mind people being trapped into one system. The only reason that you could have to want a pathway out of the regular district public schools is that you somehow have been bought out by big money, by the billionaires or whatnot. Yeah, and this gentleman appears to have been a former school board trustee, surprise, uh, in Texas. And I wrote a piece uh, last week called the, the Progressive Pleasantville Problem, or two weeks ago, where I basically talk about this phenomenon, particularly among white progressives. By the way, welcome to the party, Chris. I was worried that you were taking it easy on white progressives the past few months. You're just giving me help for going after them. But this is your idea to go after them. So of course I'm excited about it. But in this piece, I track the polling data, which shows that in the past decade, especially towards the end of the Obama administration and through the early years of the Trump administration, we saw a split among Democrats, whereas black and brown Democrats maintained their support for uh, school choice measures, in particular charter schools, while white progressives saw their support precipitously drop. And I talk about in the piece how this concept of school choice has such a narrow definition that's self-serving for white progressives because they exercise school choice all the time. They move to the right neighborhood. They you know, will lawyer their way into a magnet school. They'll send their kids to private schools. They don't call that school choice, but they'll call school choice charter schools, vouchers, education savings accounts, And what do those three things have in common? Well, they're being predominantly used by people of color. And so 
we need to broaden the definition of school choice. And I think, you know, Kevin Chavis, I think it was, who said the only people against school choice are those people who already have it or something like that, he said. So I think that's what's going on here. Like these people who don't even realize, they don't even look in the mirror and realize they're exercising school choice. And in some cases, the most pernicious forms of school choice, the neighborhood school, which has a long and racist history in this country. So I'm sick of this line of argument, really. Does it make sense to you? Have you learned anything about the psychology of the left that billionaire turns out to be their biggest boogeyman? Like if you could just say that word, it ends all rational debate after that. Like like on the right, anything communist or woke or red, you know, is is considered to be the big boogeyman. We don't want to be taken over by commies. But on the left, they don't have many boogeymen that are as effective as the billionaire. Once you say that, if you're at all connected to a billionaire, which we all are, everybody works for a billionaire. I don't know if you, like if anybody has checked the country that they live in recently, but if you're listening to this on your way to work at a major corporation, you work for a billionaire. Like I've had fights with journalists who have used this line of argument who literally are owned by multinational corporations run by a billionaire. Listen, if you're writing journalism and you're using this line of attack, you're drawing your paycheck directly from a billionaire. So are most people here uh, listening to this. So I wonder why, like uh, my question around that was why this is such a particularly kind of effective and Swiss army knife of arguments for folks. School choice is just for for billionaires. It's not for the kid that's trapped in the schools you left behind. Yeah, it's noticeable that this thread doesn't include black and brown families from what I can tell. And when I hear people be like, you're of the billionaire class, right? Or whatever, or you're like a puppet of the billionaires. What you said, absolutely true. And then the second point is, well, you're of the millionaires. Like everybody talks about the the 1%, but they don't want to talk about the other 9%. Who's the party of the 10 to 20% right now? I'm a card carrying Democrat, but often, and David Shore and others have criticized Democrats for this, often, the elite of the party who control the Democratic Party are that 10 to 20%. They think like the 10 to 20%. That's whose back they have. Yeah. So in his thread here, Mr. Tackett links to a guy named, I think his name is Thomas Toltekin, who's a guy who called me a uh, a Uncle Tom. You have an amazing and impressive array of Twitter beefs. I love it. Every once in a while, I'll be in a conversation with somebody and they'll be like, oh, you do a podcast with Chris Stewart. He called me a blank or I called him a blank. And I'm like, wow, this is (laughs) prolific. I always have your back, by the way. I appreciate that. (laughs) So Toltekin is an old white guy progressive because this is the way that racial politics work. If you want to attack people of color, the best way to do it is to be white progressive who can associate them with billionaires and then all racial manners go out the door after that. You're no longer a privileged old white man, right? Actual white progressives, they believe that they are so allied with people of color and the marginalized that they can't be racist. But anyways, I digress. He sits around all day long and all he does is draw weird graphics that connect everybody to Netflix and Reed Hastings, Bill Gates and Microsoft, the Walton family and Walmart, Charles Koch, Bloomberg, Arnold, and Enron. And anybody who gets any grants from the foundations that has anything to do with any of those entities is bad. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. The first one is he never mentions that, you know, groups that he supports get money from these same folks like the NAACP and others. He doesn't talk about the $500 million that goes into the, you know, the democratic military complex that ends up being in the hands of teachers unions and anti-choice education monopolists. None of that money matters. So for them to 
create these simplistic narratives. School choice is about only four things, religion, libertarianism, technology, and white supremacy. Those are the four categories that he gave you. Number one, it completely erases the problems that marginalized people have. People who are marginalized by race, geography, class, income, whatever you can you can imagine. It erases them from the discussion and makes this a white-on-white fight between white liberals and, and white conservatives, as if the rest of us are just supposed to be children watching our parents fight and argue. I don't like it on the right. I don't like it on the left. Uh, I don't like it anywhere. And I, I will call it out. And this isn't just one guy with one thread on Twitter. This is representative of a nation of thinkers on the left who consider themselves to be fairly educated people, consider themselves to be allies to people of color, and they are painting with crayons. They are writing these tweets with crayon in ways that I think are very destructive to the debate for education. But this leans into our second piece, which is around think. What's our think piece for this week? I should say at the outset that more than a year ago, I was invited into a group of uh, nonpartisan or tripartisan uh, thinkers on education commentary who were brought together to try and think what would be a path forward? What could be a gen- an agenda for the future for education that we could agree on? And what would be the items in that agenda that should be so apolitical that they shouldn't cause a problem? And I just want to like cut to the chase and say we never got there. I actually ended up leaving the group and so did a few other people. Um, the differences were pretty profound amongst us. But for those who stayed, they were able to work out some difference and not come to full agreement, but they created an agenda. If you want to find it, it's at uh, opportunityamericaonline.org. The group is called Opportunity America. They put out a report last week called Unlocking the Future, and it's a series of essays from these important thinkers, including some friends of mine. And I thought that maybe it would be good for us, number one, Ravi, for a couple of shows to talk about opportunity in America, because I think that's the way forward. Opportunity as an agenda for education could replace the nasty, ugly, divisive kind of fights that we're having about culture and other things that don't matter as much. What is the path forward for getting every kid? an opportunity to learn, an opportunity to succeed, and an effective education. So I wrote several things last week in support of this report because I wanted my organization to have an opportunity week. And I thought today we would talk about the first one, the very first essay in the group, which is from Darrell Bradford. And for people listening, Darrell Bradford is the president of 50CAN, a national organization that advocates for state policies to be changed, mostly with the intent of improving outcomes, educational outcomes for kids. And in his piece, he writes about the thing we were just talking about, school choice. Now, he doesn't do it because he's Mr. Moneybags walking around and wants to, you know, create techno surfs. But he's doing it because he really believes that he benefited from school choice himself. He actually grew up in the same place that Freddie Gray grew up in, in Baltimore, and actually got a ticket out of the hood and a ticket into a very nice Catholic school. And he's done very well in life because of that. And he wants every kid to have that opportunity. So one, Ravi, you know, uh, at the outset, we should just talk quickly about his premise. And the, the name of the essay is What the Pandemic Taught Us, Direct Funding for Families. And uh, people don't get confused with me because when you see me online and I'm kind of attacking sometimes the folks that say fun students, not systems. And I feel like I was the one who coined that phrase, by the way. I just want to keep kind of putting that on the record. But and and my, my the pandemic changed some of my attitudes about this. But Darrell makes this compelling argument. He basically says that all of the education 
interventions that we have tried are going to be doomed to fail until we just give the money to the parents directly, create an education market, and let parents take their money with them wherever they will. And that will create a responsive market to the needs of real parents and what they really want. And that will supersede all the other things that we have been trying. The things like, you know, race to the top and teacher evaluation and, you know, assessments and all of that. So what do you think about the general premise, Ravi, that we're going to be doomed to fail as long as we don't just put the money into the hands of parents and let them create an education market that's responsive to them? Yeah, I see two main premises from this. One is what you just described. And I think the sort of premise even behind that is that the pandemic unearthed certain things about our schooling system for parents that made them even more urgent about this, which I tend to agree with. I don't, I wouldn't claim to fully understand that dynamic, but my, my hunch is that he's right about that. And the data seems to back that up. If you look at data around, not just how students achieved, which the sort of introduction to the whole piece goes through the NAEP data that this is the biggest drop in the national assessment for educational progress data, the national test that we basically give out uh, every year or every two years. The, that that was the biggest drop we've ever seen from pre-pandemic to after pandemic. And, but then you look at other data, like the populist data that we've talked about before from Todd Rose, talking about how parents, uh, their perceptions of the system have changed pretty dramatically uh, during the pandemic. He tracked that pretty well in his data. And you start to see that with also enrollment patterns. So I, I think he's right about that. I also think that he's right about this bigger premise he has. He, sa- he says, basically, we have to revisit old assumptions about what our coalition looks like. And this really dovetails with what we were just talking about in the last segment. And what he says is, and I'll quote him, instead of concentrating our efforts on one education sector, charters or portfolio districts, we must reorient policy towards collaboration and universality. Many suburbanites and white progressives fail to appreciate the role choice plays in closing the achievement gap for low-income kids, but we can't reinvent the system without these groups. We need a strategy strategy that includes them and draws on their support. And he goes on to talk about like more about that. I think he's right. I think this is tricky because this is what we were just talking about. There's half of my brain that wants to ridicule the white progressives on this, and there's another half of me that wants to bring them along and make them part of the, the coalition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think what he's saying is, look, I know enough about Darrell to know that he enjoys poking fun at these people as much as I do, but I think this is constructive. I think he's right. This this is also something we talked about with the Rick Hex and Finn piece that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I do think we have to build a strategy that includes them. And I think Darrell's theory, and I'd be interested in how you think about this, his theory is that education savings accounts and vouchers are a key tool in helping us win over those people and include them in the coalition. How do you feel about that? That vouchers help us win who over into the coalition? I guess like expand the coalition of choice. Because right now it's like urban charter schools has been our coalition, basically. Uh, And then we have to basically depend on, as we've talked about in other segments, conservative state legislators who don't necessarily have charters in their districts to pass the right legislation for us, even as they block those charters in their own districts. And I I think what Darrell is saying here is, let's create a broader coalition and have mechanisms of choice that not only empower the parents of color even more than they are now, which I think is Darrell's opinion, is that actually like the ESAs and things like that are actually more empowering than charters, but also that these mechanisms can reach other types of families of different income and racial profiles. Yeah, you know, I think, number one, that the main kind of evangelists of choice right now are the wrong people to present an, a bigger tent message for the public. 
And the left and others are rightfully kind of on edge about them because the same people that are trying to hand you school choice right now are the same people who are trying to narrow the scope of who should be really first-class Americans. They're trying to disenfranchise people more than enfranchise more people. And they're the main proponents of choice, of ESAs. You also have several states that, you know, we talked about it, I think, in a previous show. You have several states where it's been proven that the majority of people taking advantage of those programs are people that never were in the public schools. In at least three states, you have the majority of the kids who are enrolling in those programs being kids that are already in private school. And really, it's just a direct transfer of money out of the main system into that system. I think that there's a couple of issues right here that I would start with. And Darrell's a friend, and I know where he's going with this in some ways. The first one is, you probably agree with him on the, the pandemic revealed so much to parents and parents now are energized and want to do so many wild different things. And it just changed the way that they were thinking and whatnot. That to me sounds like the worst kind of uh, ed reform wishful thinking. You know, it just changed. It just parents got a chance to see what was really going on in the schools and whatnot. I actually believe sometimes we just start telling ourselves a thing and then we get all the bias samples that help us believe the thing even more. And then we start trying to build policy on something that was really felt like, feels like a lot of wishful thinking. I actually believe, and I could be totally wrong here, that the opposite is true, which is that the nostalgia for getting back to the regular system was so strong and always was going to be so strong that the moment that the doors opened again and people could get their kids back into the pattern that they had been in before, that was going to feel like home. And that was going to feel like getting home. And that's not to say that there aren't some families that went to pods and some families that aren't in the system anymore, some that have done private school, some that are doing homeschooling. It's not to say any of that is untrue. It's just to say that the extent to which those things are true might be overblown in all of our wishful thinking. I think like we could take our conjecture, right? I have my opinions, you have your opinions, Darrell has his. But I think there, you know, Tamara in her introduction to this whole report does cite polling data. And I think she talks about the impact polling team who had parents who showed that they were more concerned now than ever about what's going on in their public schools. So nearly half, 46% of parents uh, said they wanted bold change in K-12 versus 36 before the pandemic. And nearly two-thirds, 64%, said parents should have more control than they do over what children are being taught in school. That dovetails with what Todd Rose found is like a pretty dramatic change in some of these attitudes. And his polling, to me, is like the opposite of, I don't know a lot about what impact polling's uh, model is, but Todd's is about as airtight as any polling I've ever seen because it, it goes through the public and private sentiments of people and we had a whole interview with him last week uh, on the Lost Debate Show where he talks about his methodology, which I find to be pretty sound. So, yes, I have my theories. I, I came in with an opinion that I thought parents were going to be appalled by what was going on. And uh, I think like the, the authors of this study generally tend to agree with that. Now, I don't think it's dispositive. There's other data that they quote that I that also is inconvenient to people like me. So for example, they talk about how there was pandemic learning loss, but there also was pandemic learning loss irrespective of the COVID policies in certain states. So it was happening in states that opened earlier and closed later, whatever. Like that 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 seems to be their claim. So I, I want to at least throw that out there because not all the data perfectly fits my narrative either. No, I think I think what we do in reform sometimes is assemble all the data that does fit our narrative. You know, parents are pissed off. No, they're not. 
actually education fell down the list of the things that voters in the last you know major election thought was majorly important. It fell down the list after inflation and crime and economic type things, patriotic type of things. Schools are actually almost always the dog of the polling. They're like the, we, we you know, like even I, I heard you say, you know, the polling of parents. Well, parents aren't all the voters. And when you ask the voters what they care about most, education doesn't even rise to the top, first of all. We want people to be more energized about education and we can't get them to be more concerned about it. We want them to be more angry than they actually are in many school districts. Yet when we organize on the ground in those school districts, the level of satisfaction for the very things we're trying to persuade the public oftentimes that what they have is not good enough. And it's not an easy job. Like, you know, polls can tell us everything we want. True. And then you go and try and organize in communities and you find out it's very hard to get people to see how bad things are in some cases and how much they need to change. So there is some polling data that seems to indicate parents did care. So Tamar talks about that same poll, the public opinion strategies impact research poll had 72% of midterm voters rating K to 12 education as very important. You know, and just to compare that, that 72% is compared to 76% who said the economy and jobs. So that's pretty close. And then you obviously had the year before that, the Glenn Youngkin race in Virginia, which nobody would dispute that that wasn't an ed- education race. That was the number one issue according to the polls. It certainly was the number one issue that he closed on. And then you look ahead, and I'm, I'm about to write something about this uh, right now, looking ahead to the Republican primary and then the general election you better believe that education is going to be a big issue, I think, in this next race, because it's either going to be Ron DeSantis, who's polling right behind Trump, and he's obviously has made education a big part of his public branding and policy. But even Trump has felt the need, the guy who never puts out policy, and I'm going to put air quotes here for people who are just listening, <laughs> Trump put out an education policy platform a couple of weeks ago. Now, platform is a very strong word for what he put out. But but there obviously this is shaping up to be a bigger issue, I think. So I, I do think that education is is growing in, in terms of its profile in these races. And I think the dynamics on the right are going to make it certain that they're going to be a big issue in the coming general election. And I think that's an opportunity, really. I think it's good that education is elevated, even if it's elevated in disingenuous ways, because it forces everybody to have a conversation about what's happening in our schools. Because if you compare it to, you know, what happened in the 2016 primary for the Democrats, for example, it's laughable how education came up in those. If you remember the debates, like there was, there was probably more discussion of busing. If you remember the exchange between Kamala Harris and Biden, like a policy that hasn't existed for decades, then there is about contemporary education issues. And so I would love to see that change. Yeah. I mean, some of the things I pay attention to is I think it's true that dissatisfaction is higher than it's been. And it, you know, and that changed actually maybe three years or so ago. The number of completely satisfied and somewhat satisfied folks is still, you know, pretty high. But dissatisfaction with the schools in general or the direction of public education in general polls pretty poorly usually. And people are usually, we've said it a million times, happier with their own school than they are with when you just ask them about education writ large. Education's on the wrong track. How's your school? Great. (laughs) Uh, And then when you go and look up, if you're like great schools or innovate or any of these groups that actually go out with the public and try and help them understand whether their schools are good or not, and you start showing people the difference between their perception 
and what the actual outcomes are in their schools, it's shocking to to most people uh, when you can get them, when you can even get them in the room to talk about it. Uh, there are whole cities that don't even want to have this discussion. Listen, last week we talked about a, a city that has 20-something schools where not a single kid is proficient in math, right? And oh, by the way, another 20-something schools only have like one or two kids proficient. They didn't even make the list of the non-proficient schools. But to get people to understand that is something that's always been a challenge for us. So it makes me suspicious anyways. I understand the polling. I think we rely on it too much. I don't think polling is information. I don't think people who do campaigns and actually work on the ground believe that polling is information when it comes to matters like this. And I don't think that the polls are, um, I don't think they're completely clean in what they're asking the public to draw their their assumptions. If you look at the questions of what they're asking, you can sometimes see why polls tell you whatever the organization doing the polling often wants it to tell you. I, I'm just going to say that. like School choice polling, for sure, tells you what whatever organization. If a union does a poll, school choice is you know, uh, something that the public doesn't really love. And if you're a school choice organization, magically, everybody wants school choice. Maybe that's too... Too narrow of a view for me. But, you know, Darrell's piece isn't all rested on that. He does start with things changed during the pandemic. Parents became more interested in in more opportunities. I don't disagree that that happened at some level. He's saying that we should build on that, that kind of new way of thinking that parents have and honor it by giving them some resources and some power, be able to choose for themselves what type, choose your adventure, like what type of schooling their kids will get. I don't know about that, that third part about the market What'll happen? I've advocated this forever that we just give parents their per pupil allotment. I have three kids. The per pupil allotment is 16K. That means I'm going to have quite a bit of money to work with if you tell me that I'm just in control of my three kids per pupil allotment. And I could use some of it for schooling, I could use some of it for extracurriculars or whatnot. If I'm a good money manager, that might be a good deal for me. I don't know that it creates a great market. Uh, and I think we just talked about a state where some of the people were using that to go to SeaWorld. Yeah. And yeah, I think they got to tighten that up. Okay. So I have a thought about what you were just saying, but I do want to ask you to be clear. So where I, I was curious about this. Where are you right now on the ESA, the educational savings account debate? Like, are there certain states where you're like, oh, I like that version of it? Or are you just kind of against it right now? Period. I've actually like religiously stepped out of the school choice um, huddle and I'm allowing the people to self destroy themselves that are trying to pitch that to the public because they're missing important guardrails. So you're against it? No, no. It, it's beneath the dignity of my contempt uh, right now. Oh, wow. You're sidestepping. You're sidestepping ESAs. Audience, I, I would call it sidestepping. Let, let it be known that Chris does not want to render judgment on the ESAs. No, I'll just put it this way. In the history of racism, anything, any policy tool could be used to, to, um, to further racism. So once you start saying, I don't care what it is that you support, once you start saying it being used for the wrong things, that's when you should call an audible. You should say, you know what? Mm-mm, not for me. Not right now. Uh, And then there is the thing around, like, I always, I wrote about this last week, I was always dogged a little bit by the leftist claim that all school choice does is fund private school kids who are going to go to private school anyways. I always said that that was untrue. Well, it turns out that it's not exactly untrue. It's actually now been proven in multiple states, which to me is pretty astounding. Like 70 something percent had never attended 
a public school. I, I can't remember the exact number. I don't want to misquote it, but it was a lot. It was like very high. And I had always said that that wasn't true. Yeah. This is what I'm writing about now. So my opinion will be very clear in the next few weeks, but I'll, I'll give a preview of it, which is in theory, I don't have a problem with this. Like I actually think in theory, it can be a really helpful development, but my concern is in the provider side of things, not the parent side of things. Like I think whenever you have this kind of growth of people taking money out of the system, I don't worry about the system. I don't think you do either. Like I I worry about the kids in the system. So we should not personify the system. The system is a means to an end, not an end of itself. And the system could change. My worry in some of these places like Arizona, where you're reading about like parents buying kayaks and SeaWorld tickets or whatever, is that the state hasn't built up and may not build up fast enough a series of providers who are well regulated enough so that we know that they're spending that they're spending the public dollars well and serving kids well like there's not enough requirements that they show that they're actually providing strong educational programming and the metaphor for this to me is the hospice industry which Arizona also has a problem with where there was this huge expose. There were a couple articles about it recently where what's happening is these private providers have been basically, it's the same system, basically voucher type system. People can take their money from Medicare and send it to hospice providers. The hospice providers kind of grew up overnight and became these huge profit centers that weren't serving patients really well. They were lying to patients. They were like fly-by-night operations that weren't doing a lot of good. And now we're having to pull back that deregulation. Like I think it was an area where I'm generally like a little bit more skeptic of a lot of regulations than a lot of progressives. But I think that there are some of these cases like hospice care where you could look at it and say, all right, this is really bad. Like we we need to have a stronger system of providers. The government has a role to play to ensure that the providers are there and that they're strong. And I'm not convinced that a lot of these laws, you know, and these ecosystems are healthy enough to handle a surge in demand that's about to happen right now. So that's where my head is right now is like, I think that this is, this might be happening too haphazardly and this, the rules are too loose in a lot of these places. And I think this is where federalism could work well. Like if a, if a couple of states try different versions of stronger regulation, I think we could learn from it. I'm not sure I'd want to be the first state to go the furthest on this, but I do think we're going to learn something really fascinating, you know, because you've got 12 plus states that are implementing it, that, that have ESA proposals on the books and a few states that you've mentioned that have already implemented the law. If you look at Arizona's growth, it, it may be that we're seeing a few years of exponential growth in the use of ESAs. And that's going to be a huge set of data that we're going to be able to look at. And my sense is that there's going to be some good there, but a lot of chaos we're going to have to unwind that chaos to say, all right, how do we actually create a healthy environment? I mean, it's a soup right now. You know, I wonder, like, I've always been a supporter of school choice, universal school choice. My premise was always that I believe that marginalized people need access to every type of learning environment that we could possibly get for our kids to advance. And for us to be able to have that right, we have to be for that right for other people, too. That's why I was for universal choice. Me and Howard Fuller used to have conversations about this. And Dr. Fuller has been a mentor in a lot of my thinking on these things. And he has never been for universal school choice. He has always been for targeted school choice, specifically for um, marginalized populations. And I was the one who was on the opposite, you know, end of that 
debate saying no. I think the only way that you can have it and it be durable is if everybody gets it. That's the only way. Like there are so many kind of factors kind of flowing together now. What if the real goal of some people though, literally is not for it to be about a choice of multiple options, but really is about the thing that you're accused of doing, which is trying to destroy the mainline system. And my response to that always has been, you know, first of all, I'm not here to defend the system. And, you know, the first question you should ask shouldn't be like, you're taking your kid out. What's it going to do to the system? I mean, that sounds like, you know, like are you pulling your kids out of, you know, prisons, whatever. But what if it, what if that did go away? What if you really did believe that a crappy private market was going to be started up, like you just said, an unregulated, crappy private market of a bunch of like Louisiana style Jesus walked with dinosaur type schools opened up. And then the main system was at the same time going to get worse for lots of kids. Would you still be for it then? Well, that gets to the system point. I'm not a like believer in the quote unquote system in and of itself, but it does matter. Like how we sequence this really matters. And I'm not sure Arizona has it figured out. For example, it reminds me of the debathification in Iraq. Like the way people used to talk about it. If you remember during the Iraq war, after we invaded and we toppled Saddam Hussein, there was this process called debathification. And if you heard people making arguments at that time, they made sense theoretically. They're like, oh yeah, we can't hire any Bathists who had been in the Saddam government before. And in theory, if you just looked at it, you're like, oh yeah, totally makes sense. Just like when I hear people talking about, oh yeah, money should follow the kids. We shouldn't worry about the system, yada, yada, yada. But what happened in Iraq was nobody was left to be able to run the critical functions of government and all these arguments in theory made some sense in practice, it meant that the system fell apart because people weren't thinking about, all right, who's going to show up to that police station? Who's going to show up to that school? Who knows how like, you know, that water pumping station works, et cetera. And they may be Baptists, right? And we need to actually keep the system running long enough to make a transition. And that's what I worry about with the system in Arizona is yes, the system of itself is not an end in and of itself, but there are kids in those buildings. And, you know, we got to worry about that last kid in that last building and whether they're receiving a great education. We have to worry about the transition. We do have to worry about the finances, right? Like these things really do matter. You know, we do have to worry about keeping like a high degree of educational quality for enough kids and that the details of the transition really do matter. All right. Let me pitch you on a view on this. All right. Let's hear it. All right. Honest feedback. I think the best way forward is to fortify the main system that educates the majority of our kids right now and to put pressure on it to create more options for learning, more pathways, more opportunities, more choice, but make it public school choice and not necessarily expose people to the unregulated, weird kind of public market that doesn't exist right now because we have already lost too much ground. We're never going to put the majority of the kids in that system anytime soon. And it's, it's, it's a gamble that actually isn't worth the practical focus of where we are right now and what we should do. We have to, number one, stop talking about all the schools as if they're all bad because they're not. Reformers love to do this fatalistic thing where the system is terrible and this is why we lose with the public because a good number of people have their kids in good public schools that are actually working and working for many of them. I'm not saying that those parents are always aware when they're not working. I'm just saying they're not always wrong. There are some great public schools that people have their kids on and we sound foolish when we try and tell them 
that they should have some fatalist message about all the system. It's what people like Rick Hess were arguing. You know, I had a chance to sit down with him, by the way, if people want to listen to Lost Debate podcast tomorrow. I interview him about the piece that we that we, we talked about the, a couple of weeks ago about Ed Reform. But he makes this point about the messaging around Common Core, that we were starting to tell people that all their schools, something like over half of schools were viewed as failing after the Common Core was implemented. And so all these people were looking around and be like, I don't feel like my school is failing. And that that sort of gap in the messaging created some confusion and, and lost reform some legitimacy, according to him. There's a lot of people who send their kids to schools that even on paper are failing, but the schools themselves, first of all, their kids aren't failing. And they say to themselves, well, listen, this school is clean. It's well-stocked. It runs well. My kids are getting a great education in it. And if anybody's failing in it, it must be on the kids. It's not the system right? Because they have the honors classes and the APs and, you know, all of that stuff. I've heard a million parents just like, not a million really, but lots of parents just say, it's what you make of it, right? When I start talking about the schools or whatnot, they're like, it's all of what you make of it, whatnot. Anyways, bottom line is the majority of our investment is in this thing we call the public school system, which needs to have more avenues to learning, more choice, more opportunity. We need to start from the premise that a good number of people are actually getting a good education in it already. And it's for those that are not getting a good education in it that we need to double down our focus on. And sending them to some weird, unregulated private market sounds good in theory, but it actually, I don't know, has any data behind it. Like if we want to talk about be empirical, that says it's the way forward. Like everything is going to fail. Let's just stop thinking about teacher preparation, teacher induction, teacher evaluation, scope and sequence, how you run schools and operate schools. Let's not think about any of that stuff. Let's just give people coupons to go to schools that don't exist. <laughs> that doesn't make the most sense to me. So I, I, I share a lot of your sentiment. I think where I am right now is in doubling down on our federalism to say, all right, we've got a few states that, that have implemented laws. Let's see those laws play out and hopefully tighten them up. I wouldn't want the next 12 who are proposing ESA legislation to all pass 12 versions of the same thing. I'd want to slow down a little bit. Let's get a couple years worth of data, see what's working and what's not. And I, I'm open to being persuaded that this can work because capitalism is a powerful thing, right? So if in Arizona, some incredible ecosystem of support grows up alongside the exponential growth that could be happening in people leaving the system with these ESAs, then great. There's some kind of like new deregulated model of like something between homeschooling and regular schooling or these pods that are existing or parents are coming together and you know, whatever. I don't know. Like I I I I want to have enough humility to say, I am not positive this is going to suck. I have my instincts. And I what I am positive is that we can learn a lot from that experiment. And I'm like, all right, let's, let's use the federalism to our advantage here. And like, look, if that's what the state wants, right, there's a huge debate with the governor now because the, gov the governor's mansion changed hands. And so the quote unquote, what the state wants is not obvious right now, especially when you've got a gerrymandered state legislature, but like, let the states that want this implement it, let's get the data and then let's actually look at it and learn from it. Because we didn't do that well enough with charters. Cause then we, we, we had all these urban charter schools that kicked ass over the past 20 years. Durell mentions this in his piece. And then when they kicked ass, Stanford's data is amazing on this. Then the, the unions and other people who felt threatened by it just attacked the data, right? So like, even if these ESAs do kick ass, there's going to be people attacking the data, but we'll know the difference, right? So like, let's actually look at the data and say, all right, it's working or it's not. And I would say that to the people who support these too, is like, don't dig in here. 
and you know let confirmation bias take the wheel you know let's let's actually be willing to be proven wrong here that part to me is the most important as people who consider themselves reformers or, or others don't start creating language that self-reinforces your beliefs with each other and then start using it as policy prescriptions. I actually think we're doing that. You disagree with me, but I actually think that we're doing that with some of the polling around how radicalized the parents are uh, and how ready they are for something completely different and how the prime is, you know, the pump is primed to do everything from pods to yeah. kind of wacky <laughs> arrangements. And yeah. I actually just think people are way more conventional than that. And, and way more feel safety in things that are tried and true. And I'm not even saying Darrell is fully all the way down that train. He's making that argument here. I don't know if he truly thinks that like, because he runs an advocacy organization. And when you run advocacy organizations, you realize that the how hard it is to convince the public of your thing, right? right? The reason that we exist is because the public isn't ready for some wild, crazy thing right now. The reason that we are all like in the business of trying to persuade the public to want something different is how conventional they are in what they already want. Well, I also think I think sometimes the public will say something and then when it happens, they get buyer's remorse, which could be happening yes. here too, right? They could be like, Quick. oh, I want radical change. I want radical change. And then, then that school down the street from them closes. They're like, whoa, this is too radical, right? So I actually do think this yeah. could that could be what's going on here. And they want a lot of what we're not offering, Ravi. You know what they want? They want football. They want swimming. They want prom. They want the movie experience of what high school is supposed to be and that they had. They want the letter jacket. They want tradition, in a lot of cases. And we want to offer them storefront schools in a lot of cases with some wacky setup of, you know, half-trained people. Anyways, that sounds terrible, but let me wrap a couple of things here. <laughs> First of all, Darrell's piece is worth a read and I suggest you guys go and read it. We didn't give it its full fairness because, you know, there is a p the last part here I completely agree with him on, which is around eliminating boundaries. I said a lot of devil's advocate stuff in the way that I approach this today. But I'll say this about Darrell's piece, and him and I are, are like of one mind on some of these things. A story like his, where he got out of a bad neighborhood in Baltimore and got a great education that set him up to have a very good life, is something that he continuously wants to pay back. And he wants that to happen for other young people that are in the same position that he used to be in in Baltimore. I understand that myself with a very similar story. I didn't have the school choice option. But when you are trapped by boundaries in a, a low opportunity learning situation where the schools around you don't even offer, in some cases, the top math programs, or they don't offer the pathway, which means if they don't offer it, it means you don't even have any chance to succeed at it because it's not even offered. Those are the people I think that need choices and options. And he is very much for that. He says the next steps, funding channeled directly to families isn't a utopian dream. Many states are already experimenting with these policies that put money in parents' hands. And he, he goes on to list states that are, are doing this. I actually believe resourcing parents is a great idea, and he has a great idea with that as a strong uh, educational intervention. Parents need more money when they need the tutor. They need more money and resources when they need the additional help or an enrichment experience that they can't get at their school or something that widens their kid's horizon. So I agree with him 100% putting more money into their, their hands is really powerful. I don't know that it's the or the educational intervention. I don't know. Like if I had to think of 100 educational interventions, I believe this one just is what it is. 
we should be giving, especially marginalized parents, more access to the resources, control over the resources for their kids so that they can make some choices for them. I don't know that that's the thing that gets your kids literate and numerate and doing really well in critical thinking and, and other things. I think that there are other ways to really focus on teaching and learning regardless of what school you go to and kind of just some regular, unsexy educational stuff that we should be improving regardless whether it's private, public, or charter school. District school, conventional school, doesn't even matter. So that's my final word on this. Ravi, do you have a final word on this one for this week? No, just that I, you know, I wrote about this last week. I, I ranked sort of my the biggest trends in education as I see them. I, I see this as the number one trend in this country right now. And, and I think this is an explosive issue that is going to fundamentally change the way education is delivered in certain states in this country. And it could be as much of a dozen plus states in the next few years, like much of Red America, the ESAs. I think this is huge. And huge doesn't necessarily mean good. I just think it's going to be majorly impactful. Yeah, I think a lot of kids are going to go to SeaWorld. Uh, (laughs) I think there's going to be a lot more kids going to Disneyland than ever before. And there's going to be a lot of schools that can't afford pencils. And listen, I'm happy to always be wrong. That's the whole thing is this is just one guy talking. I'm happy to be wrong. I'm not just trying to be countercultural, but I can't tell you how many other tsunamis we've called out before in the past that didn't come true. How many big, you know, things we put our money and our hats on and it just didn't happen. And so much overblown rhetoric about our main kind of core ideas that didn't come true. And I don't think we always go back with good forensics and admit it when it happens. It's just one guy talking. (laughs) Anyways, I appreciate for all you uh, friends of the show who have been sharing the show with others, it's starting to show and I appreciate that. We do still get messages and voicemails from you that we want to work through. And if you want to send us a voicemail or an email, here's how you do it. So to leave us a voicemail, you can call us at 321-213-9171. If you want to send us an email, you can send it to citizenstewartshow at lostdebate.com. Dot com. With that extension to our email, it lets you know that we are a member of the Lost Debate Network. So you should go and check out some of the other shows. Ravi, what are new ones that they should be watching out for in the Lost Debate Network? Well, we just released a show called Sweat the Technique. It's you know, a bunch of us former and some current educators who are applying the lessons learned from K-12 education to other aspects of life, like learning hobbies, being a better parent, coaching sports teams, et cetera. And so this is actually our new fastest growing podcast on the Lost Debate Network. Sorry, Chris. The first interview I did was an interview with Doug Lamov, which we put on this feed. The second one was this woman, Kelly McGonigal, about the upside of stress, that very popular episode. And then this coming Wednesday, we've got an interview with the, the guy who started the world's most successful surf camp. And he talks all about how he took like something really difficult to learn like surfing and was able to break it down and has been more successful at creating intermediate surfers from people who'd never been in the water before surfing. And we basically pull out of that like a lot of lessons about how do you teach things well, no matter what they are. It was a really fun conversation. So that's airing this Wednesday. So you could check that out at Sweat the Technique, wherever you get your podcasts. Appreciate you guys, as always, for watching the show. Please leave a rating and leave a review for the show if you love it and if you like it, and also share it with friends and family. We'll see you on the next episode of The Citizen Stewart Show.